Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. Well, on Friday evening, we did something that was so very 2019. We went inside the mall. As you can imagine, it was, uh, it was pretty deserted. So we parked outside the main entrance there with the, the food court. We, we ventured inside. Decided to go into Barnes & Noble, the bookstore there. Just decided to look around, see what we could find. Uh, I decided I might, while I was there, go check out the, the kids section there at Barnes & Noble. Maybe grab myself a new cookbook. I kind of had a hankering for some green eggs and ham. Maybe uh, check out the latest fashion magazine describing that crazy trend of foxes wearing socks. Okay, so you got me. I really wasn't there to pick up the latest magazine. I really wanted to see how they were going to handle the, the, the Dr. Seuss controversy. I never dreamed that I would be talking about the Dr. Seuss controversy. Especially since Barnes & Noble has no problem keeping other books on their shelf, like this classic from Karl Marx called The Communist Manifesto, or the classic work from uh, a, a politician in Europe by the name of Adolf Hitler called Mein Kampf. I checked this morning. Those are still available and in stock at Barnes & Noble in Chattanooga if you'd like to go pick up a copy. When I got to the kids section, I was shocked to find this site. Right here in Chattanooga, Tennessee. I started to get angry. I could feel my face turning flush, and it simply wasn't from wearing a mask too long in the mall. So I took the picture, and I proceeded to, uh, to do what most would do, march to the exit angry at the site that I'd seen. And then I stopped, and I turned, and I saw the unsuspecting employee standing there at the hub in the center of the store. And I thought to myself, you know, the sanctified thought of, this would be a good time to go share the gospel with that guy and let him know about Jesus. You know, that was my first thought. Actually, that was not my first thought. <laughs> so I marched myself over there, and I looked him in the eye and behind his mask and behind my mask, and I said, all right. I said, I got to know. I said, did you guys really pull all the Dr. Seuss books? I didn't know what I was going to say when he looked at me, and you know, I knew he was going to say yes. But instead, he looked at me and said, no, sir. He said, they are sold out. He said, I have had calls all day long from people wanting whatever Dr. Seuss book they could get their hands on, and they are completely gone. And so my temperature began to cool. And I walked out thankful for the fine people of Chattanooga, Tennessee, who were probably getting re ready to make a bunch of money on eBay by selling Dr. Seuss books. <laughs> I also looked this morning before church, and you can get some of the canceled titles on eBay for uh, already auctioning for, off for over $200. So if you would like, a, if you'd like the, uh, this, whatever the Mulberry book is, you can get it for about $200 and some, some odd dollars on eBay this morning if you'd like to add that to your library of contraband books. So as we approach a year of the COVID-19 pandemic, it, it seems to me that one of the casualties of this year has been that too many people have had too much time to, shall I say, overthink things. 
It's amazing what happens when you sit at home and you don't have anywhere to go or anything to do. You just, the mind starts to, to wonder and, and consider things too much. It's, it's affected everything from the toy store to the grocery store to the bookstore to the sporting goods store to the television. Of course, we have last week's non-controversy of the gender of the plastic potato. Popular brands have dropped logos for Land O'Lakes Butter and, you know, uh, Uncle Ben's Rice. Those things have changed. Sports teams have changed names, and they, they're so creative in changing names that they don't even have a new name. The Redskins are still just the Washington football team. They, they couldn't even come up with a, a name, although I don't know that that will change because there's a move of, you know, to get rid of the founding fathers' names on things, so you can't have the Washington football team either. I'm sure it's just a matter of time before the Braves are no longer brave enough to keep their name. Major corporations have embraced critical race theory. If you don't know what that is, you need to look that up and study what that is because it's going to affect just about everything that you think about in the next 10 years. Coca-Cola made headlines for, training, uh, for, training, for a training seminar that encouraged its employees to be less white. The polar bear didn't take that very kindly. I have seen that they have been interviewing Smokey the Bear to be their new mascot, however. You're watching Hollywood systematically purge individuals who don't tow the line. If they don't tow the line, they're going to find themselves without a voice. Disney recently fired Gina Carano, the incredibly popular co-star of their hit series, The Mandalorian, for expressing her less-than-liberal opinions on social media. And so she has ran afoul of Mickey Mouse's liberal tendencies. Welcome to 2021. We don't like to speak of 2020, but I'm not sure that 2021 is shaping up to be much better. What's happening is we are reaping a harvest of seeds that have been sown over the last five to six decades. This is what we're experiencing today. And it's just a matter of time before they go after the voice of the church. Because let's be real, this is far more controversial than anything Dr. Seuss ever dreamed of writing. It's far more conservative than anything Gina Carano ever tweeted. This book speaks of real moral evil. This book draws attention to the real human problem. This book looks at every single one of us and it declares the unthinkable. We are all sinners in the eyes of of a holy God. And to a culture that's bent on canceling anything that hurts feelings or speaks to absolute truth, it's just a matter of time before Barnes and Noble will keep the Communist Manifesto and purge the Bible from their shelves. You know, one of the things the Bible does that hurts our feelings is that it calls us what we are. You notice that? It, it actually calls us what we are. If you're someone who lies, what does the Bible call you? A, a liar, okay? If you're someone who cheats on your spouse, what does the Bible call you? You're an adulterer. If you're someone who takes the life of an innocent person, the Bible has the nerve to call you what? Murderer. And the Bible has no problem whatsoever looking at the entire human race and declaring with absolute certainty that each and every single one of us, though created in the image and likeness of the Father, that we are sinners. I understand that that's not popular, and it certainly will 
probably get us deplatformed at some point in time. It's not politically correct, this book that we devote ourselves to. It doesn't really place a spin on things either. It calls a spade a spade. The wisdom of Proverbs is no different. It speaks the truth. It warns us of the very real dangers of following the pathway away from God's wisdom. It warns us about the pitfalls of walking the pathway of folly. The book of Proverbs values the benefits of hard works. It celebrates the accomplishments of those who embrace the challenge of working for the glory of God. And for those who aren't willing to work, it has a particularly lovely word that I wish were in our vernacular more often. It calls those people sluggards. Parents, feel free to call your teenager a sluggard when you walk into their room and you see what a disaster it actually is. I believe the word sluggard to be a particularly clarifying word because it has the word slug in it. And when I think of slug, I can think of ammunition and a shotgun, but when I think of slug, what I think of is that slimy thing that crawls up on the porch and leaves this trail and mess behind it. It doesn't move anywhere fast and nobody's happy to see it. I've never gone out on my porch and seen a slug and its slime trail and thought, oh, God has shown favor on me by giving a slug to my front porch. In fact, in the twisted part of my brain, what I've often thought is I should go get the box of salt to see what happens to the slug when it meets the sodium content of table salt. It's kind of fun. It's kind of gross, but, you know, teach your children. The word sluggard was popular back in the 1800s, but since then it has fallen out of the good graces of the English language. However, I'm quite certain that if you began to use the term properly today, that you would fall out of the good graces of our current culture. A sluggard is someone who is disinclined to work or exert him or herself. It is the concept of laziness on steroids. It is laziness personified. A sluggard is the epitome of laziness, the person who refuses to put his hands to the plow, the person who is perfectly content to ride on the coattails of someone who isn't afraid to work. And you think when you go to work, there are people you identify in your workplace, those are clearly sluggards. And Proverbs isn't a fan of sluggards. This is the point at which a true sluggard would change the channel on the television. So our text today will take us to Proverbs chapter 6. As we continue on in this study, we're going to begin to hop around a little bit more as we work to hit the highlights of the book. I really wrestled with doing chapter 5 today, but it has a bit of a Song of Solomon type feel to it. And um, I think I probably should tackle that in an adults-only context. Plus, Spencer wasn't real excited about teaching the little kids before we sent them out about the content of Proverbs chapter 5. He, he, asked me, uh, he asked me the other day, what verses are you preaching? And I sent him the raciest ones from Proverbs chapter 5 to, uh, to see what kind of kid's sermon he could stir up. Um, all of you guys are flipping back to chapter 5 at this point. I will pause and let you read. So we go to Proverbs chapter 6, say Proverbs chapter 5 for later. And I would ask you if you've got your place there in Proverbs chapter 6 that we would stand as we read Proverbs chapter 6 beginning in verse 6. Go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. 
How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Father, thank you for the wisdom of Proverbs. It certainly speaks to us and helps us to be mindful of these tendencies that we may even have in our own lives. Lord, we understand that laziness has no place in the kingdom of God, and it certainly is not something that is respected in the wisdom of your word. We ask your blessings now as we consider the sluggard. More importantly, though, as we consider the ant to find this unanticipated source of wisdom. Uh, bless our time now. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you. You could be seated. You know, the sluggard needs no introduction. As chapter 6 unfolds, it begins with a, a very practical wisdom in, in the very first chap, verses of chapter 6 here uh, about entering into financial liability with your neighbor. Uh, essentially, Proverbs chapter 6 is a warning against co-signing. On, a, on any sort of a, of a financial debt with somebody that, uh, that maybe you, um, you don't have the, the closest relationship with. But we move on into verse 6, and the sluggard, the, the person identified as the sluggard here, is given a very clear set of instructions. Go to the ant. Consider the ant. Now, this ain't like it is here in the South when you're talking about ant. You're talking about Aunt Susie. That's not the ant that we're talking about here. This is the, the insect, the bug that we are very familiar with. Now, the original readers of Proverbs had no problem identifying the sluggard because the, the fact of the matter is, is, is it's a lot easier to be lazy today than it was in the day of Solomon's wisdom. Uh, we have so many conveniences today that it would make Solomon's head spin. You know, the fact of the matter is, is that today, this is the world we live in, you can have a, a really good-paying job that allows you to stay in your pajamas all day and literally do no more physical exertion than this right here. And you can make a lot of money if you're really good at doing this right here. Working from home, staying in your pajamas, no physical exertion whatsoever. You don't have to worry about a strained back. You don't have to worry about anything except for eye strain from looking at an illuminated screen all day. My eyes just hurt from the hard work I put in today. Solomon would look at us and say, excuse me? Excuse me? Have you ever sawed something with your hands? Have you ever had to carve your, your, the foundation of your home with hand tools and, a rock, and rock? Have you ever had to dig a stump out of your field with nothing but the, the sweat of your brow and, the, and the whatever farm animal you may be able to, to have access to? And you're worried about eye strain? You see, in Solomon's day, a lazy person was a genuine threat to the well-being of his family and even his town. This is why Paul has no problem in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 saying, if, if anyone's not willing to work, let him not eat. The question is, we need to answer from Proverbs is this, how does the pathway of wisdom inform our work ethic? How does this pathway of wisdom challenge us in terms of, of avoiding the title of sluggard? In order to grasp this, let us first consider the characteristics of the sluggard that's defined not only here in chapter 6, but throughout the book of Proverbs. Now, as I do this, I don't want anybody nudging anybody, okay? Because there may be a tendency here 
to, to do some of that. Please don't do that. Uh, I don't want my schedule filled up with marriage counseling all week. I've got some other things going on this week, okay? So the first thing we recognize is this. The sluggard will not make up his mind. The sluggard will not make up his mind. Look at verse 9. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? Now, it may not seem like much of a decision to you, but to the sluggard, to the lazy man, the decision to get out of bed is a significant one. It's a major one. Uh, after we get there, verse 10 gives us some, some more insight into the sluggard's thought process. It's just a little sleep, just a little slumber, just a little nap. But ultimately, it is still a decision. You know, decision-making can be a challenge. Making the wrong decision is going to cost you something. You know, I've heard it said that the, the worst decision is no decision. But we can be paralyzed by, by, trying, by, by our fears of making the wrong decision. Because if you make the wrong decision, what's going to happen? It's going to cost some resources to work, to, to clean it up. Uh, how many times have you gotten into a project of some sort? You've made a decision, and once you made the decision and you invested in the decision, you got it finished and you realized it was the wrong decision, and then you got to do some other things to fix the decision? Uh, you, you regret the decision that you made, because of the, the impact that it cost you. It's just easier to stay in bed and avoid the cost of making the decision. Mark Twain said this, good decisions come from experience. Experience comes from making bad decisions. When you think about decision-making in the Bible, Joshua's words in Joshua chapter 24 really, really do stand out. As the people are prepared to take possession of the promised land, Joshua looks at the people of Israel and he tells them this, choose. Make a decision. Choose this day whom you will serve, the Lord or the idols. Make a decision. Make a choice. You can't be neutral. You've got to pick one or the other. But let's be real. Choosing to follow the Lord comes at a cost. It comes at a cost. It comes with work. It comes with sacrifice. Following Jesus is not for the lazy. The sluggard is going to constantly find himself at odds with the kingdom of God. Constantly. Because there's going to be a constant plea, a constant asking, a constant demand to put your hands to the plow. There's going to be constant calling to work the harvest. It's going to be a constant ask. People get mad at church because we're always asking for volunteers. We're always asking for this. We're always asking for that. What do you think we're going to do? There's work to be done. You have to ask. You, people have got to put their hands to the plow. The work doesn't get done if people aren't willing to put their hands to the plow and do the work. Serving Jesus comes at a cost. And if someone has told you otherwise, let me apologize that you've been lied to. So the sluggard won't make a decision. The sluggard won't finish things either. If you flip over just a couple of pages into Proverbs chapter 26, you look at verse 15. This is a great verse. Proverbs 26, verse 15, it says, The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. It wears him out to bring it back to his mouth to eat. I've always said that if you're too lazy, if you're too lazy to eat... 
there's a problem there. This is the epitome of laziness, being too lazy to pick up the fork. And generally speaking, laziness is not a cause for not being willing to lift a fork. That's usually not a problem that lazy people struggle with. Now, there's plenty of reasons that people don't eat. But not eating has more to do with like depression and, and grief than they do with, with laziness. So what exactly is Proverbs pointing to here when it says that, that a, a sluggard is, is not even willing to lift his fork from the bowl? What it's talking to here is that there's an unwillingness to finish the task. You've put your hand to the bowl. It's the, what happens next? You pick up the food and you eat it, but you've committed to the bowl, but you're not willing to go any further. Because sluggards are not willing to finish things. Now, understand, this is the exact opposite of God's character. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6 says that he who began a good work in you will do what? He's going to bring it to completion. When, when God gets started in your life, when God starts doing a work in your heart, he's not giving up. He's not finishing. He's going to keep it going. You know, there's days when I consider the work that God is doing in my heart as he sanctifies me and I just look at the monumental task that he has in front of him, and I think, man, it, for God, it sure would be easier if he'd just give up on me, because there's a lot of work to be done. There's a lot of sanctifying left to, 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 to finish here. And he really should just give up on me, because there's way too much work to get this guy ready for eternity. But he doesn't. He keeps chipping away, adds more fuel to the fire, keeps working the clay, keeps doing the work. Because God will bring it to completion. He never tires, he never slumbers, he never takes a break. If I wake up in the middle of the night and there's something in my heart that's wrong, God's there to, to work on it, to, to teach me, to show me, to lead me. He's always there. He looks at me and he looks at you and he says that we're worthwhile. And he is firmly committed to the task. Because the truth of the matter is this. Unfinished work is never pretty. Unfinished work is never pretty. Over the last 15 years, I've spent a lot of time down in, in Jamaica doing some mission work and things down there with some partners. And if you've ever got to go and you ever travel beyond the tourist areas, you'll find that there's tons of houses that are all unfinished. And it's this way in a lot of developing countries. You'll see these houses, these concrete houses. They're built out of concrete, so they'll stand up to the hurricanes. And you'll see lots of rebar sticking out all over the place. All this rebar sticking up out of the top of the houses. And none of them are, none of them are pretty. Like the bottom could be gorgeous, but then you look and there's this, all this rebar sticking up out of the corners and everything, and it's, it's ugly, as, ugly as I'll get out. And I've heard different people explain it differently. Some have said that the owners are, are kind of building as they have the money because the mortgage industry in Jamaica is just not like it is in America. Others have said that the government only taxes completed structures. And so they never, they never finish them. That's a good strategy. But it's ugly to see all these houses with big pieces of rebar sticking out of the walls in the hopes that one day more concrete will be poured to make the house bigger. You know, the, the sluggard's life is littered with unfinished business. And that's not just in, in physical work, in relationships. Because fixing relationships takes hard work. It takes effort. It takes sacrifice. It's not something that comes easy. You've got to finish the task. We see it in work, but we also see it in the kingdom. I wonder how many relationships have been damaged by sin. 
And then they're left irreparably harmed because we just are too lazy to do the hard work necessary to fix the broken things. Thirdly, the sluggard will not face reality. The sluggard doesn't see things as they actually are. Over in Proverbs chapter 22, another interesting statement from the sluggard here. Proverbs chapter 22, verse 13, the sluggard says, There's a lion outside. I shall be killed in the streets. There's probably not a lot, lot of lions roaming around Jerusalem. You, you think they probably got the lion problem solved when they started building the cities in, in the ancient world. They, they might have had rats and mice and those sort of things, but they probably didn't have a lot of lions roaming around just the streets there. And so, so this has the, this smells of a bad excuse, right? There's a lion outside. I'm not going out there. If somebody in Flintstone looked at you and said that, now there might be a possum big enough to tote you away. But if somebody looked at you and said, there is a lion down by Susan's, I'm not going down there. Like, for real? Like, you might believe a bear, but a lion? You see, sluggards are great at making excuses because they're not facing reality. There were no lions roaming around downtown Jerusalem, and so what you have here is simply an excuse to avoid accomplishing work because it's not a rational person. It's a sluggard who has made this declaration. This is an excuse to avoid the job, to avoid the task. They're just not facing reality. Let's consider this, though, from a, from a Christian perspective. Inasmuch as there's work to be done at your job, otherwise you wouldn't have a job, there's still work to be done in the kingdom of God. I think we've probably heard this before. There's a pandemic outside. The kingdom will need to wait until it's subsided. I think we need to come to grips with a very sobering reality. And if anything, the church has failed remarkably in this last year. In spite of all of the circumstances, the work really hasn't stopped. The, the calling hasn't subsided. Uh, we've identified all kinds of industries that we believe needed to be remained open during this year. We're glad the grocery stores were open. Certainly glad the pharmacies were there. Man, Home Depot and Lowe's hadn't struggled this last year, have they? I'm glad toilet paper factories finally got their act together. All those are essential businesses that we're, we're thankful that they continue to operate. I think I could make the case that the work of the kingdom probably shouldn't have stopped either. Certainly it may have changed its mode, but the work should never have stopped. Now, as we acknowledge this, it's, things are starting to subside. I heard from one of our nurses that the COVID counts in one of our major hospitals was, was way down as of this morning, so we're certainly thankful for that. We see that the, some, of the, some of the chains that have been holding us are starting to break. But we've got to make up for lost time. There's work to be done. And what does Proverbs tell us to do? To the sluggard, it says, consider the ant. How humbling, how insulting 
of all the creatures in the in creation to call us to look to, God picks an an ant? For God to look at the crowning glory of his creative work and tell us to go look at one of the lowliest creatures for inspiration. How humbling. Especially since I estimate that I killed a couple hundred thousand of them in my yard the other day. What does the ant teach us? God, if you want us to look at this thing, what, what, sort, of, what sort of lesson is there here for, from the ant? Well, the ant teaches us something about inner motivation. You ever seen an ant dragging his feet? Go out there and kick that fire ant mound and see what happens. You don't have the ants over here like, I ain't touching that. Like, he's done kicked us over or mowed us over twice in the last two weeks. I'm not moving any more dirt. You know, you don't have the ant correcting the other ant saying, guys, why don't we move over there where the grass is tall, where they clearly don't mow? No, the ant say, we're going to build right here. This is our dirt. This is our land. This is, I don't care that it's in the middle of his pretty lawn. I don't care that it's surrounded with the best Bermuda sod. We're going to build our mound right here, and he can mow over us all day, every day, and we're going to get back to business. Ants don't, ants don't drag their feet. If you've ever found yourself at a fire ant hill, you believe this. Every possible ant that can get on you and sink his little teeth into you is going to do so. There's nobody calling the shots. There's nobody ordering them to do it. Every ant that's available is going to bite the mess out of you, and you're going to itch, and you're going to be angry. And they're not the least bit worried about the potential for death. Like, if I'm an ant and something the size of me comes by and wants to step on me, I'm going to rethink my, my situation. Like, I need to get away from that guy. He has the potential to eliminate me, not the ants. They don't care. They're going to do the work because the work needs to be done. The mound's got to be built. The ant has within himself or herself, I'm not sure because it's not a potato, all of the motivation necessary to make her life count for the good of her community. It's built in. Nobody's coordinating it. Nobody's teaching it. It's built in. There's inner motivation to finish the task. Secondly, ants teach us something about hard work. Take your lunch outside today. It is a beautiful day. I, I, we almost had a church conference this morning, and we voted to move all of the worship service outside today. Take your lunch outside to a picnic table in the park today, and you're going to have company guaranteed. They're not going to wait for you to leave. You brought the picnic. They're happy to share your leftovers, and they really are undeterred by your presence. It doesn't matter how big the work is. They'll gladly take it on. This is sort of, sort of morbid and gross, and so uh, thankfully we've got a few minutes before lunchtime. Uh, I never knew how to, how to clean a deer skull before. And I had a hunter friend who took a deer skull that he wanted cleaned and, and turned into a mount, and he took that deer skull and he set it in the middle of a big old fire ant mound. And guess what happened? Over the course of time, that old deer skull turned into a nice, pretty white, uh, white fixture to hang on the wall because fire ants did what fire ants do. They cleaned it. And that deer head was a lot bigger than the ants, but the ants looked at it and said, we'll do it. We'll take care of that. No problem whatsoever. It, it was, it was, they were undeterred by the size. Now, uh, again, think in proportions. If somebody came in here and dropped a pile of rocks equivalent to a deer skull and we're ants, we look at that pile of rocks and say, 
I ain't touching that. Uh, you know, call somebody with an excavator. Cole, come on over here, bring some equipment. Let's get that pile of rocks moved. If you're an ant, you'd get the shovel and go to work. Wouldn't think twice. You just go to work because that's what ants do. Not afraid of that hard work. Fire ants are as happy to chew on a 300-pound man as they are to clean up a five-ounce bird. Unfazed, undaunted, ready to do the hard work. But thirdly, those ants teach us something about future preparation. Again, verse 8, she prepares her bread in summer. She gather, gathers her food in harvest, making preparations. That ant is working, hoping tomorrow goes the way that she wants it to. That fire ant mound that I killed the other day has been in my yard since the fall. It's kind of up in the corner. I hadn't thought much about it until I was mowing the grass uh, thanks to the little bit of early spring weather and hit that ant pile, and, man, that thing came to life. I thought it was just a pile of, you know, leftovers. Those things have survived the winter. I thought, you know, it's been cold enough. Those ants will be dead. I assumed they wouldn't survive the winter, but, man, my lawnmower blades hits it, and then they're there. They're, they're ready to work. And they said, oh, let's put it back together again. He scattered the dirt. Let's build it back. Until some nice white powder came and dusted their, their little home. Those ants made preparations last fall to make sure that they could survive the winter. And they did. They did. As we look to the ant, we see these, these virtues on display. And these, these virtues, man, they would benefit each and every single one of us, particularly as we think about it from a kingdom standpoint. There was inner motivation. What if it was just within us to do God's work? We didn't have to be asked to serve. We didn't need to, be wait, to wait for somebody to come along and prod us. We didn't need to wait for the nominating committee to call us. We looked for the task and we jumped to make it happen. It amazes me. This astonishes me. It shouldn't astonish me. I've been ordained for 20 years. This should not bother me anymore. But this, this one thing amazes me. The number of people who will step over trash in the church's parking lot. It amazes me even more the number of lost people that we work around every single day, but we won't take the time to speak. Inner motivation to do the work that God's called us to. A hard work. Church is fine as long as it doesn't get too busy. Don't talk about vacation Bible school or serving on a difficult committee or taking a week of your vacation to go on a mission trip. It's okay as long as it doesn't get too busy. Preparation for tomorrow. You know, we're not guaranteed tomorrow. We're not guaranteed to make it through this worship service. You know, if we were an ant pile, a big foot could come and interrupt this thing at any time. Even though that we're not guaranteed tomorrow, the Bible still makes it a point for us. We're, we're told to store up for ourselves treasures in heaven. So there's an expectation that even though we're not guaranteed tomorrow, that we still be busy about the work of God, preparing us not for today, but for things to come. And so there is this, this call on our lives that we need to go about storing up treasures in heaven. And where do those treasures in heaven come from? Well, they, they come from the work that we do, from the people that we touch, from the ministries that we serve in, from the gospel that we share. That's where those treasures come from. And it, it begs the question, what are you doing today to be a better man or woman of God for tomorrow? 
Those ants, they managed to, to fix it last fall so they could survive the winter. And they were, they were excited the other day when that warm sunshine started heating that mound up and my lawnmower stirred them up. They were motivated. They'd gotten ready. They were prepared. Probably hungry. Parents, what are you doing today to make sure your kids are growing in their fear and knowledge of God? You know your days are numbered, but you know your kids are a generation after you. What are we doing to make sure that we're preparing them for tomorrow as well? You know, the fact of the matter is, is this. We've got some hard work to do as a church. The pandemic has taken a toll. We probably can identify people that we're not going to see again. We know there's people who may go elsewhere for whatever reason. And I know that our tendency is going to be to, to maybe sit around and, and pine over what used to be. But we can't recreate tomorrow. Man, we can't even recreate 2019. I mean, I was thinking, I, went, I was thinking about last March and last February, those worship services before it all stopped. And I think back, and man, the house was full. There was 180-something in Sunday school, one of those weeks before the pandemic shut everything down. It was exciting. But if I can just be real transparent, I don't want to go back to how it was. Because if I go back to how it was, I erase all the lessons that I've learned since. If I go back to what it was, I forget everything that God has taught me in the last 52 weeks or so. And I don't want to have to relearn those lessons again for one. But hopefully, if the Bible's true, then by the affliction that we've all experienced in various ways and means, we're better as a result. And we should be better as a church as a result. And we should be more willing to put our hands to the plow to do the work that God has called us to do. The fact of the matter is, is we've got a lot of work to do from a kingdom standpoint in our community and beyond. When you look at the kingdom of God, you can't help but recognize, though, there's some, there's some pretty high expectations for work. There's some pretty high expectations for what our, what our commitment is to the task. I alluded to this passage earlier, but in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul walks through a, sort of a New Testament concept of, of, of work. He says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6, We command you, brothers, so this isn't optional, these are instructions, this is, this is something we're, we're supposed to do, I command you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness. Old Testament, translate, sluggard. Keep away from the sluggard, you might say, and, and not in accord with the, the tradition you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle, I-D-L-E, we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day, 
that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have the right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly, earn their own living. You see, the Apostle Paul says there's people that look busy. They're active, but they're busy is really just being busy bodies. And the difference between someone who's working hard and who's being a busy body is pretty evident. Someone who's working hard produces fruit. Someone who's just a busybody is somebody that also produces fruit, but the fruits are not fruits of the Spirit. The fruits are not fruits of kingdom labor. The fruits of a busybody are division and gossip and hatefulness. And so the New Testament looks at the church and says, there's work to be done. There's work for every single hand to be occupied with. Don't be idle. Don't be, don't be sitting around waiting for other people to, to do the work. Be busy about your father's business. Church, we've got a lot to do. There's a lot of people who are lost in our community. I, I read, you know, in the United States, we've seen over half a million people die. And again, you can argue the numbers, whatever, I don't care about it. I mean, the politics and all that. The, the stats say a half, over a half a million people have died from COVID. That's a reality. And whether they actually died from COVID or not, the fact is half a million people have died. How many of those people have died and never had a chance because we never took the time to share the good news of Christ with them? How many people in our community each and every single day do we pass, do we work with, do we engage with, who need to hear the gospel, who need to hear our testimony, who need to hear what Christ has done in us. How many? I think if we're honest, we'll see that there's work to be done every single day. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, may we be busy about your business and not simply be people who are busybodies. Lord, may we recognize that there is much work to be done in the kingdom today. And the only ones to do it are, are here. And we can't expect the government to do it. We can't expect the, 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 the social organization to do it. We can't, we can't expect that. If we want to see a, a change happen, it's affected here. And so, Lord, may we take the lessons of the last year and may we be a better people from what we've learned. May we take the challenges that we faced over the last year and grow as a consequence. Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon.